You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Helena Andrews-Dyer, a pop culture reporter here at The Post. Grammy-nominated rapper Fat Joe is known for hits such as Lean Back and All the Way Up. He joins us today to talk about his new memoir, The Book of Jose, and how he sees the next generation of hip hop. Joe, welcome to Washington Post Live. How are you, Lena? How are you? I'm wonderful. Let's get started. Let's hop right into it. Uh, you've always rapped about your life, right? Your music has always had a tinge of autobiography to it. But a book is different, right? We're talking about 300 pages. Tell us about how digging deeper was for you. Was it hard? Very different. You know, when you rap, you uh, use your imagination, you use your creativity. Uh, you know, that's why guys like me and Meek Mill and Jay-Z signed the bill against uh, using rap lyrics against artists because it's no different than uh, somebody doing a movie or doing a play or whatever. So the rap portion is really uh, exaggerated, many lies. And so when I wrote my book and my memoir, I didn't want to pass on or something happened to me and then I have somebody tell my story that uh, wouldn't do it that justice. So that's the purpose for me, uh, writing this memoir, this book, and just keeping transparency and letting people know that they could go through anything in life, darkest periods in life, and they could still end up with a smile on their face. And uh, and and so you know the music, but you don't know what's been going on behind the scenes, and that's why the the book of Jose is necessary. That's incredible. And you write. You talked about a movie, right? You write in the book, life in the South Bronx could feel like a movie, uh, and your life is actually being turned into a TV show for Showtime. Tell us about what it was actually like growing up in the Bronx in the 1970s and how your childhood shaped who you are today. Well, you know, I was very blessed to grow up in the Bronx. It's the birthplace of hip hop music. Uh, we had nothing. So I challenged people to Google pictures of the South Bronx in the 70s and early 80s. It looked like Ukraine. Don't ask me how it got there. Don't ask me why it was so bad, but the buildings were rubble. People actually, families, hardworking families lived in abandoned buildings. Uh, and it was so poor, but what we didn't have was love. We had a sense of community. If somebody tried something in the community, everybody would stand up for it. And, uh, and we didn't know what we were missing. And, uh, and and so that 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 diversity of the Bronx, that hustle, that entrepreneur, uh, made me who I am today. Um, and if you ask me, what would Fat Joe now say to a little Joe? There's really nothing I could tell him because there were so many different things and pitfalls and um, obstacles I had to navigate through to get to where I'm at now that there's no way I can give advice to a young Joe. So you had to go through it, is what you're saying, to become who you are today. Yes. Absolutely. 
And you talk about the Bronx. Hip hop started in the Bronx, period, end of story, right? Uh, you describe yourself in the book as the Forrest Gump of hip hop, which is just perfect, right? You always in the right place at the exact right time. How? Tell us how you managed to be there front row at so many pivotal moments in hip hop history. Well, you know, in the hood now, we call it outside. It's got like, yeah, I was outside. <laughs> like, really, you know, I, I, you know, I left my mother's house when I was 14 years old. You know, hip hop has always been in my DNA. It's been in my soul. And so anything moving with hip hop, whether it was graffiti, whether it was breakdancing, whether it was uh, just attending legendary jams and block parties. And, and I could tell you, you know, I was there when Big Daddy Kane brought out Jay-Z for the first time. I was there when Bismarck E brought out Big Daddy Kane for the first time. I was there when Lord Finesse brought out Big L for the first time. I was there when the Outsiders brought out Eminem for the first time. I was there when Fat Joe brought out Big Pun for the first time. Um, and so just being there as a fan uh, was hip hop history. Um, and so uh, great times, you know, even now, you know, it's different, but even now we don't miss a Mary J concert. We don't miss a Mark Anthony concert. We don't, you know, we, I, you know, I'm outgoing. I love to dance, you know, and, and, and get it in. I love that. Literally another alternative title for the memoir, I was there, right? Cause you were literally there. As a fan of hip hop, how did that affect your artistry? Cause you started as a fan. Oh, well, you know, I've, I've done so many things that I can't believe. Like I had to pinch myself, Like you know, my idols are KRS-One, LL Cool J, Heavy D. You know, I met all these guys and worked with these guys and they're good friends of mine. And uh, that that's just surreal. So if you imagine a kid that grew up loving Justin Bieber or uh, New Edition and they finally get to hang out with them and be family and be friends. And, um, and so now I've always been humble and respectful of the legends and the pioneers and the people who paved the way for us to get here. You know, hip hop is America's natural resource. It came from the ground up. Uh, people were so poor and go through so much oppression that they had to sing their way through the pain. And, and all these years later, this has created maybe millions of jobs and trillions of dollars um, in the world. It's hip hop art form. And so I'm just proud to be a, a, a vessel of hip hop music and just uh, represent it to the best of my knowledge and the best I can uh, with honor and dignity. Wow, hip hop is America's greatest natural resource. I have never heard it put that way and that is so real. What do you want readers to learn from your story? What do you want them to take away from the book? Well, this book right here, I just want you to know, it's very scary, uh, very true. This book will get you through the darkest times. Now, I have to keep in mind, when I wrote this book, 
I was thinking of the white lady I see in first class reading the book on the metal thing. So I had to make it relatable to everybody. It's not just a hood book, but it's a book about going through your darkest times. You know, when I first got signed and I rushed home to tell my mother I was signed to a record contract, she told me she had cancer and there was only 1% chance she would win. You know, I'm only 19. My son was born autistic. His mother wanted to give him up for adoption. If it wasn't for my mother and father uh, helping me raise him, uh, I would never have a career. You would have never heard of Fat Joe. Um, my sister went to have birth and they gave her an epidural, which numbs you from the waist down for the pain, but it went from the waist up. She became brain dead. Uh, we went to the uh, adult care facility eight months every single day. My mother and father was in there. I was up in there. And she finally passed away. The baby passed away. Meanwhile, I'm performing in the MTV Awards, the BET Awards, uh, the Billboard Awards, and doing Lean Back and doing... And so it was very important for people to understand that it was much more than me just making hit records. I wanted you to know my journey and all the stuff I was going on that was going on behind the scenes. They were really, really challenging. And so I think when one reads this book, uh, you'll learn to weave through adversity and never let that predict your future. Because uh, if I would have let them talk me out of my greatness, I wouldn't be here to this day. Wow. So it's, you are not necessarily what you've been through, right? Um, and the fact that you're shining a light and you're so positive now after having gone through so much, that's what you want to show readers. And that's the journey that folks don't know about, right? Absolutely. That's amazing. Who, who would think Let's, a kid from the projects, I'm sorry to cut you off, but who would no. think, I just got a, a, a moment. Who would think a kid from the South Bronx in the projects would end up invited to the White House. Mm. And uh, and that was one of my biggest, because uh, you can buy anything. You can get rich and buy anything. You can't buy your way into the White House. And uh, shout out Power to the Patients, an organization I'm very fond of, uh, that bring out the transparency. You know, a lot of people are losing their jobs, losing their families, losing their homes. Once you go through money issues, that crumbles everything. And so Power to the Patients took me to the White House and it's all about transparency, you knowing the prices of what they're charging you in the hospital. Somebody could charge you $300 for a procedure and charge the next person $3,000 for the same procedure. So it's, it's very dear to my heart. And uh, just <laughs> fighting through this, I never thought I would get to the White House. And that brings me to my next question because it's about politics and policy. Um, in the current state of hip-hop, you mentioned it earlier, you support New York's Rap Music on Trial Bill, which passed the state Senate last May. The law would limit the admissibility of music as in a criminal trial, right? You can't use someone's rap lyrics against them. Why was it important for you to get involved in that issue? This is terrible and very dangerous. If we grabbed 10 young kids male, female, whatever, 
and got them to rap outside of high school, junior high school. They would rap about having Bentleys, having a mansion, having jewelry, their this, their that, the that. We know they're lying, but there's nothing wrong with imagining and being creative. Now, if we know 10 rappers in a row are going to rap, and, and gonna lie and exaggerate about their truth. How if they get locked up, we use those same lyrics against them as reality. And so the prosecutors know they are doing the wrong thing, but they wanna win. And so this is a terrible and dangerous uh, use of the law that uh, it, it's incredible. Imagine you writing, uh, 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 a song that's like a movie and somehow you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and they're using these lyrics against you like you robbed the bodega, you killed the man when it's absolutely not true and so me as an elder statesman of hip hop I gotta speak up I gotta talk up for the youth and those who support the bill they argue that the practice disproportionately affects black and brown people, black and brown men. Do you think hip hop is <laughs> well, held to I mean, a different standard? Hip hop is black and brown. Creatively, right. hip hop is uh, uh, other than a few. Like we got Logic, we got Eminem, we got a, a couple of brothers that's white that we support and we love. And shout out to Eminem! Congratulations on the Hall of Fame. That's my brother. But Hip hop might be uh, 99.6% black and Latino. So it's like, you know, who you think is going to be affected by this? Uh, poor legal representation. People don't have money for the right lawyers. Um, and they sending them away for life and, and 25 years to life. Um, and so this, this is a terrible thing. Do you think hip hop is held to a different standard than other musical Absolutely. genres? I mean, we rap and you say, uh, keep it real. But keep it real is taking care of your family, putting your kids through college. Keeping it real is helping feed your community, opening businesses in your community. Keep it real is loving yourself, not hating yourself. And so just because we say keep it real, then all right, this must be real. And these kids are getting railroaded, doing tons of time. And, and then what are we gonna do? When they figure out that it was, it, okay. it was the wrong use of the lyrics, 25 years from now, when these kids, are t they go in jail 20 years old, 46 years, we see it every day on the news. Somebody who was wrongly convicted. Oh, they, but the guys lost their whole youth. The women lost their whole youth. So let's address this problem now. We're intelligent enough to deal with reality. And shifting gears, just honestly, slightly, but it has to do with this. Hip hop is in mourning right now, following the death of Takeoff. The 28-year-old talent, one-third of the rap group Migos, in your three decades in the game, you've witnessed so many giants and up-and-comers, their legacies cut short. How did you deal with that? And how do you think hip-hop can deal with this? You know, I knew Biggie Smalls before he was the biggest. We talked every day. They murdered Biggie Smalls. They murdered Big L in his own block. 
Run DMC, the greatest group of all time, Jam Master J, murdered in his own neighborhood. Uh, Tupac was murdered. Pop Smoke. The, the man, the kid Pop Smoke never got to hear one of his hits. Uh, PNB Rock. Now take off. I mean, you know, the difference is in my era, you know, we we were getting murdered, but we we're getting murdered, you know, with every two years or something. This is happening every single month with these young kids. And instead of us uh, praising these young kids, instead of us looking at guys that come up from where we come up from, uh, who can provide jobs to the community, who uh, should be adored as heroes, uh, are getting looked at now with a jealousy. And so we're learning to hate ourselves. And my thing is about life. You only get one life. Nobody makes a U-turn. Nobody comes back. And so it's sad that a senseless act can happen to take somebody who's a great person, who means so much to their family, to their community, to the hip hop community off this earth. And so we gotta keep talking and mentoring the youth every chance we get and supporting youth groups all around the nation who are out there doing the work, peacekeeping, talking to these kids, trying to help. Uh, that's an important part of our future. You talked about hip hop being this natural resource. It has touched every every industry, right? Politics, art, music, film, so many parts of the culture. Hip hop is culture. Where do you see the next generation taking the genre? I believe the children are our future. And I believe they're going to be smarter than us. And I believe we have some blueprints that were never there, such as a Jay-Z, such as a Diddy, such as a Dr. Dre, uh, such as a 50 Cent. These guys uh, are billionaires growing up in poverty, single-parent homes. Um, and so um, these kids now have a blueprint to know what to do with branding, with ownership, with equity with how they're going to take their brand to another level. So I believe they'll be bigger and bigger than uh, even our generation. And you talk about your generation. You have been in the game literally three decades. You're constantly adapting, right? Let's talk about your social media, your IG Live show, right? You are Jopra. You've, you've interviewed everybody from Dr. Fauci to Alicia Keys to Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. How do you use social media to connect? How do you feel social media allows you to connect with your audience in a way that you weren't able to before? Well, you, you gave me an opportunity to say, yesterday's price is not today's price. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, COVID was very scary. Um, I'm pre-diabetic. I was watching the news. A bunch of diabetics was dying. I really stood home for a year and four months. Other than going to the supermarket, we never left our home. Um, and so one day my daughter tells me, she was 14 at the time. She said, dad, why don't you go live? And this is when everybody was stuck in the house. 
And so I went on live and thousands of people started coming on the celebrities and everybody. And then the next day she said, why don't you go on again? And so I went on and then we just started doing this every, uh, every day at 8 p.m. And you know, when I come up in the game, it was about privacy. It was about a mystique. It was about, you know, not people not having all that access to you as an artist, but going on social media and on Instagram live, help people understand like, wow, I never knew Fat Joe was this guy. I never knew he knew about this and that. I never knew he was funny. Uh, we didn't know how much he was for the people. And we are for the people. Um, when you just talk about, you tell me your joke. They try to kill you 30 times in your life. Why are you still here? I watched bullets make a U-turn. Um, divine intervention. Most guys like me would have died. But it was God's doing to show me the way that in the future I was going to help people. So recently last year, we had a bunch of uh, Muslim brothers and sisters die in the fire in the Bronx. We raised $2 million. And that was begging people and making the phone calls and doing what we got to do. You know, a couple of years back at the hurricane, who knew that Fat Joe from the projects was sending a million pounds of food, women's hygiene, water, medicine to Puerto Rico. And so we constantly try to give back. You can have someone start a certain way. And believe me, I was no, when you read the book, you realize, man, this guy was, wasn't the best of guys. But I say I was a good person that did bad things. I always had a kind heart. I always had a loving heart. But uh, I chose the wrong path. And thank God that uh, I'm still here to this day where we're able, you know, next week we're giving out six 18-wheelers of food um, in the hood. I got businesses and stores in the hood. I have classrooms in my store. Classrooms for kids that don't own a computer. And so they get to learn from the biggest and the best entrepreneurs and people come in there and teach them something. And then once the semester's over, we give them the computer for free. We get more computers and we start off the next semester. So all I try to do is show you that you can start somewhere, you can change. And America's perception of someone is, if you got arrested before, if you got a, a famous name, you know, right now, if you have a notorious last name, say Gotti, they're treating his grandson when they stop him like he's his grandfather. And I believe that people could change. The culture could change. People, it could be a redemption. It could be a way of people uh, changing. And you got to let that process um, do its course. You have a message, right? You have a message. We talked about your philanthropy, your music, your hosting. This is the last question. You have an upcoming one-man show. Last question. Tell us, tell the audience what they can expect from that show. Boy, oh boy, that's a must-see. <laughs> oh my God. They call me the greatest storyteller of hip-hop history. I don't disagree with them. <laughs> right? But uh, 
I learned about Mark Twain, who was the greatest storyteller ever. And I love Mark Twain. The only difference from me and him was his stories were made up and mine's are real. And so we're going to talk about getting kidnapped in Africa. We're going to talk about the time Mike Tyson saved me. We're going to talk about, oh, uh, what's my guy, Weinstein? Harvey Weinstein? No, we got, <laughs> no, this is going to be like <laughs> a one-man show. This ain't comedy. It's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you cry. Um, it's going to be intense. Uh, Dave Chappelle is actually introing me. So expect him to smoke his cigarette and be unapologetic about Fat Joe. And uh, this is something I always wanted to do. And I'm finally getting the opportunity to do it. That sounds incredible. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, or fortunately, because that gives people something they're very excited about. Fat Joe, Joey Crack, Joseph Cartagena, thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Post Live. It was an honor and my pleasure to be on your show. And now I'd like to bring in a few of my colleagues to continue the conversation about the youth vote and the midterm elections. Jackie Alemany is a congressional investigations reporter and Mariana Sotomayor is a congressional reporter, both here at the Washington Post. Welcome to you both. Thanks. So we are going to dive right in. Mariana, I want to start with you. Talk to us about voter turnout. Does it appear that young people are showing up at the polls? Where can they make the that's biggest impact? Yeah, that's always been the big question. And a lot of parties, spe specifically the Democrats, are always looking at the youth vote because really when you do see those younger voters turning out, it likely means a very good turnout year, especially in a midterm election where just voter turnout, voter enthusiasm tends to be lower. And, you know, a lot of the trends showing that this year might be a big night for Republicans, especially in the House. So Democrats have really been trying to mobilize that young vote across the country. But so far, the expectation is not meeting what a lot of Democratic strategists have wanted to see so far. Of course, people are still voting throughout the day, but Democrats have largely seen an enthusiasm gap problem in these days kind of leading up to the election. A number of polls showing that enthusiasm is starting to reach Republicans, but Republicans just tend to be way more pumped, ready to go vote, especially in a year like this where the momentum tends to be on their side. So it really, for Democrats, a lot comes down to that youth voter turnout to determine whether the base itself is going to motivate and make sure that a lot of members, especially on the House side and the Senate, keep their majorities tonight. And speaking of those youth voters, Jackie, tell us the top two to three issues young voters are paying attention to the most. I was hoping that was going to be your follow up because I was going to say that is the conundrum for Democrats this election cycle. According to a Harvard IOP poll that came out a few weeks ago, uh, inflation was the number one issue that young voters aged uh, 18 to 29 cared about. Abortion was second, although there was a, a fairly significant gap between those two issues. Protecting democracy was a third, followed by climate change and gun control. And only 9% of young voters cared about uh, student loan debt and the relief that the Biden administration has promised them. Um, so 
this, again, I think speaks to what Mariana has been hearing from Democratic strategists throughout the day, that there is a little bit of an enthusiasm gap here. Inflation obviously is an issue uh, that Republicans have been hammering home. And Democratic young voters might be less incentivized and less enthusiastic about turning out to the polls, especially since some of them are first time voters, uh, which makes them sort of lower propensity voters, harder to reach with Democratic campaigns and Democratic polling firms uh, that had been tracking absentee and early voting, which is what a majority of uh, young voters often lean towards, um, had showed that compared to uh, the last few cycles where there were record amounts of young people turning out at this point in time, that those numbers were lagging. Again, a troubling sign for Democrats, although uh, it is going to be a long night and week ahead. A long night and a week ahead. Okay, that is the headline. Mariana, could the midterms usher in generational changes in congressional leadership for both parties, especially in a quote-unquote post-Pelosi era and with younger lawmakers like Maxwell Frost, who you recently profiled? Yeah, I was able to talk to Maxwell Frost. He is a Democrat representing in Orlando, Florida, district and also recently talked to Caroline Levitt. She is a Republican running in New Hampshire. Both of them are 25, which makes them part of Generation Z. If they're both elected, they will be the first ones in Congress, both House and Senate, from that generation to walk the halls of Congress. So it will be something uh, different. And, you know, it comes at a time when, yeah, there are bigger majorities in both parties of just older members. We've seen a lot of them stick around and they likely will probably still, you know, be be the ones who make the decisions up on Capitol Hill. But, you know, we've seen like in 2018, when Democrats won back the majority in the House, we saw a lot more liberal members like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really come in and a number of other women I should add too, really making their stamp, pushing those older leaders to say, hey, look, this is where a lot of the Democratic Party is. Maybe we should be considering this issue and that issue. And it definitely came to the irritation of those older members and leadership. But, you know, you asked about Pelosi, and I can talk about Republican leadership in a little bit, but it really is a question whether she sticks around after this midterm election. In 2020, she basically promised uh, her caucus that for her to be elected speaker to get those votes, she would step down after this congressional term. But she hasn't made that promise publicly since. So we'll all be watching that. And if that is the case, you know, a number of members I've been talking to since last year have been saying that they are ready for a new generation of leadership. Um, it's possible that the new Democratic leader, regardless of, you know, whether the party stays in the majority or minority, could be Hakeem Jeffries. It would be historic, equally as historic as Pelosi being the first woman. He, of course, would be the first African-American person to be Speaker of the House and or minority leader of the Democratic Party. And you have others behind him who are younger, who want more member input rather than, you know, seeing that power at the top. And it's always been interesting because Republicans, their majorities, I should say their leadership has always tended to be younger. They're in their 60s. They're in their 50s. I know that doesn't sound very young, but it is when you're comparing it to those in their 80s over on the Democratic side. So you will see a little bit more of age diversity, I should say, in Republican leadership. And Jackie, how could President Biden's agenda change come Wednesday morning? 
Yeah, this is something uh, that has not been talked about enough because we have been so focused on the results of, of the election, which, again, are going to take a few days for, I think, for us to see fully materialize. But essentially, Joe Biden's agenda could be put on pause if the House, uh, if Republicans win back the House and potentially the Senate, they only need one seat to win back the Senate uh, and a handful of seats to win back the House. And the 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 you know, history is in their favor at the moment. Uh, although, again, it remains to be seen which um, of these candidates who have been viewed as, as sort of liabilities by some in the Republican Party are ultimately going to win. That being said, um, Democratic strategists have even uh, privately sort of uh, seated that the House is probably going to be run by a Republican majority come uh, January. And Biden himself finally said last week that at least he has the veto pen in the case. Um, that legislation uh, that that Democrats do not support ultimately makes it all the way to the White House. But GOP leaders have promised a slew of investigations. That means subpoenas for Democratic leaders and Biden administration officials starting January 1st. Uh, we've seen people like Congressman, uh, the ranking member on um, the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, Jim Jordan, who will likely be the chairman of the powerful House Judiciary Committee, already lining up the investigations and subpoenas that they're planning on issuing. Issuing um, and, and relitigating some of the Biden administration's most tumultuous moments, um, such as uh, the administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan. You've also heard Republicans already threatening to impeach uh, Joe Biden and some of his top officials, although uh, the impeach Biden push has gained less traction than the impeach Alejandro Mayorkas and Merrick Garland pushes uh, for, for various things. Mayorkas for his work on the border, for Merrick Garland's uh, investigations into former President Donald Trump. And then we've heard Republicans as well already um, threatening to use must-pass bills as leverage. Things like funding the government, increasing the debt limit, um, raising uh, the prospects of, of really uh, a standstill in Congress when it comes to any legislation that might make it through and, and get passed. And Mariana, I want to ask you, in June, Democrats were fired up by the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, hoping it would steer voters to the polls. Tell us, did that decision have as much of an impact on voters as Democrats originally thought, or has the election returned to quote unquote bread and butter issues like the economy? Yeah, you know, you definitely saw a bump or a peak, as a lot of Democrats like to say, when it came to talking about abortion. Of course, the moment that decision came down, you did see a lot of voters start to say, wait, what is happening here? Why are a number of my rights being rolled back? And Democrats really hinged on that message, not just not just saying, you know, abortion is being rolled back, but what else are Republicans going to roll back if they regain the majorities? However, that argument like they, like Democrats have said, reached a peak at some point over the fall, and there was a return to those bread and butter kitchen table issues. And it's something that a lot of Democrats, the most vulnerable ones tonight representing swing districts, actually told leadership and members in their own caucus when they came back in October for just a couple of weeks to say, hey, we can't just be talking about abortion. We need to be talking about a number of issues, because even though that is big and it is a threat and it's likely we will see a lot more horror stories when it comes to a number of things that the, the states are deciding on that issue. 
a lot of people are feeling the economy right now. They're filling up their gas tanks. They're going to the grocery store. That just tends to be way more front of mind. So that is where Democrats are trying to also talk about democracy in these final hours and what's at stake. But at the end of the day, we have seen a lot of polling has shown that voters continue to say the economy is the number one issue. I will say, however, after visiting Michigan, that is actually a state where abortion is on the ballot. People have to, when they are voting, also vote to have reproductive rights or roll back to a 1931 law that basically bans abortions, no exceptions for rape or incest, and or life of the mother. So in those states, which I think it's just Michigan and California, people will be thinking about that way more. And we might see if it helps some of these very vulnerable Democrats in that state actually hold on to their seats. Okay, we have to wrap up, but I want to get something from both of you, starting um, with you, Jackie. To close, in just a sentence, what are you most paying attention to today as the election results roll in? We'll start with you, Jackie, and then we'll go to you, Mariana. Yeah, uh, I am looking for the red wave. And I think that the House races that we could see the earliest indication of whether or not that red wave is actually going to play out is going to be in uh, Virginia 7, Virginia 2, um, Alyssa Slotkin's race in Michigan and in New Hampshire. And that is where um, you see these moderate Democrats, um, three of whom are running for re-election, who have continued to be moderate frontliners throughout their time uh, and previously won swing districts. And I'm going to be looking closely to see if they're able to hold on to these seats, especially Elaine Luria, a member of the January 6th committee, um, who essentially run on a, ran on a platform of protecting democracy. And Mariana? Jackie. Yeah, she totally took those. Those are exactly the seats to watch tonight on the early side. So I will add, you know, because we are expecting a Republican majority besides those early seats, I'm looking at the diversity, a historic number of women, black Americans, Hispanics and Asian Americans are also running tonight. And that could really expand the ranks within the Republican Party in the House. And also ideological makeup is huge here. And that's really going to determine how good of a majority a Speaker Kevin McCarthy could have. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Jackie and Mariana, for joining me on Washington Post Live. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.